Welcome to Noir Talk, the podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Litsur. The FNF's latest Noir City e-magazine has just released. Issue number 23 takes a look at the distaff side of Noir. Jake Hinkson and Ray Banks explore the Noir careers of two blonde bombshells, Marilyn Monroe and Diana Doris, respectively. Imogen Sarah Smith takes a deep dive into the woman-centric output of director Vincent Sherman's Noir period. Natalie Atkinson looks at the recent spate of dark adaptations of Dame Agatha Christie's work. Vince Keenan interviews modern pulp author Laura Lippmann, creator of the Tess Monahan series, and also interviews director Paul McGuigan about his latest film, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which chronicles the final weeks in the life of Academy Award-winning actress and noir icon Gloria Graham, exquisitely played by Annette Benning. Legendary cartoonist Trina Robbins gives us the exciting history of Miss Fury, the 1940s comic strip created by June Tart Mills. And in This Just In, the Film Noir Foundation's flagship Noir City Festival had its most successful year and its most diverse audiences yet. You can subscribe to the quarterly Noir City e-magazine and receive the current issue by making a donation of $20 or more to the FNF and signing up on their mailing list. You'll receive four quarterly issues of the best cinema publication in the world. Just go to the Contribute tab at filmnoirfoundation.org, make your donation, and make sure you also sign up on the mailing list to receive the e-magazine. All your donation dollars go towards supporting the FNF's efforts to preserve and restore classic noir films. And now, let's talk to our guest for this month. joined now by Brian Light, a Noir City e-magazine contributor who's also the showrunner for the Noir City Hollywood Film Festival. This year's Noir City Hollywood, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary, runs from Friday, April 13th to Sunday, April 22nd at the Egyptian Theater. All of the films in this year's lineup are set in the City of Angels, most of them in glorious 35mm, including prints struck expressly for this series. Brian, thanks for joining us. Uh, happy to be here, Hagai. We'll delve into some of the festival titles coming up, but let's start with uh, what it's like behind the scenes at Morris City Hollywood. So what can you tell us about how things work as the festival showrunner and how you got involved with it in that capacity? I think during the 2015 Noir City Hollywood Festival, uh, we were having dinner and um, there were a couple of us, uh, Eddie, Alan, myself, and our uh, significant others, and we were talking about the festival, the logistics and how you know, how it's put together, how it's run, how it's organized. And um, one of the issues that was uh, an occasional concern was uh, the fact that on a nightly basis, um, the Egyptian staff understandably had to be rotated. Uh, so, you know, from night to night, it could be a, a different theater manager uh, a different programmer, even a, even in some cases a, a different projectionist, and um, so there it was a it was a fairly well organized uh, event, but um, there was no real sense of continuity. It seemed uh, uh, certainly from the Film Noir Foundation's point of view, and I think. Uh, what they decided, uh, given my background in management and um, working for the city of New York for 28 years, I, it just came up in conversation that they thought uh, it might be a good idea if they hired me to represent the Film Noir Foundation and sort of like interface with the staff, which, as I mentioned, you know, do, does by necessity change from night to night. And in so, uh, in general terms, uh, what I do is, and so, so I was open to the idea, and we, we, we went back and forth about exactly what role they needed me to play, and, um, and you know, we finally agreed upon uh, a general game plan on how I, how I was to approach uh, this position. And it's worked out very well so far. You know, I've implemented some changes, uh, some logistical changes that I thought uh, improved the flow of the evening and the timeline. More specifically, you know, what I do each night is I create a, uh, a run sheet, which is a precise timeline 
for how everything unfolds during the course of the evening, beginning with when the first person, when the first staff member at the Egyptian reports to the theater, which is usually the theater manager. And, you know, and I break down when the, the rest of the, uh, the staff shows up, the volunteers for the Egyptian, as well as the volunteers for the Film Noir Foundation, when the doors open, and I kind of try to time out how long the intermission is going to be, uh, when we set up the merchandise table, when we break down the merchandise table, you know, those kinds of logistics. So it's a lot of moving parts to get these <laughs> to get these screenings uh, working, which is um, not something we usually notice as fans just going to these screenings, but there's, there's tons of stuff happening behind the scenes, which uh, needs a lot of coordination. Let's talk about some of the shows coming up at this year's festival. So as we mentioned, the theme for the movies this year at Mar City Hollywood is all movies that are set in Los Angeles. And there is going to be a special guest after one of the screenings. It's going to be James Elroy, the great writer, receiving the Film Noir Foundation's Modern Noir Master Award, which was awarded last year for the first time to the great director Stephen Frears. Elroy will be receiving that this year after a screening of L.A. Confidential with Eddie Muller. So tell us a bit about that event and uh, what people can expect there. Well, uh, that's going to be a very interesting evening. I mean, it's a great film. Uh, it's, it's almost, it's about two hours and 20 minutes, so it's, an, it's epic in scale. And, uh, and I'm, sure that, uh, I'm sure that the conversation, the Q&A afterwards is going to be uh, equally epic in scale. Um, James Elroy, as I'm sure you know, is a, a very colorful uh, uh, and outspoken uh, personality. He's a great writer, and he is. It, it seems like he's a natural fit uh, to be selected, uh, you know, as a modern master, given uh, not only his his extensive crime fiction resume, but he's also been a long time proponent and uh, avid fan of film noir. We held our first pre-festival meeting this, this afternoon with the staff at the, uh, at the Egyptian, and uh, they told us that the advanced ticket sales for that particular night were really, were like off the charts. So uh, we know that's going to be a really, a really great night, and, uh, and I'm sure there's going to be a great crowd. I actually met, uh, on a personal side, I actually met Elroy briefly back in 1984 when he was doing a book signing to promote his third novel, Blood on the Moon. Uh, I think that was in, there was a great old mystery bookshop on the Upper West Side of Manhattan uh, called Murder, Inc., and they had a lot of great crime writers who would pass through and promote their books, and um, Omar Leonard being one, James Cromley. And uh, when, uh, when I had a chance to chat briefly with Elroy, and not surprisingly, the subject of film noir came up. This is the inscription that he wrote to me in Blood on the Moon, dated May 18, 1984. To Brian White, pale, noir, sleaze, themed. Three exclamation points. You dug my you dug my first two excursions into darkness. Now dig, underlined, a toboggan ride to the inner sanctum of hell. Hang on tight, your soul is about to be devoured. So I think it's going to be an interesting Q and A to say the least. <laughs> Excellent. That is uh, very Elroy for sure. <laughs> very typical of his style and. That's great to get to meet him uh, all those years back. And, of course, he's still going strong with his writings. And uh, as you mentioned, tickets going fast for that event. So if you're in L.A., uh, yeah. be, sure to, be sure to pick yours up ahead of time to attend that event. Um, wanted to mention also, as you mentioned, it's going to be an epic night with the long film and the um, event afterwards. Another long night, and uh, part of the literal title, is going to be a Joseph Losey triple feature of great films by the great director Joseph Losey, starting with The Prowler, one of the Film Noir Foundation's restorations, and then M, his remake of the Fritz Lang classic from 1930, which is a very hard film to see, but is really terrific and interesting. And the last part of the triple feature will be The Big Night, 
which was Losey's last film that he made in Hollywood before, unfortunately, he was blacklisted and had to go to Europe. Um, I wanted to mention those briefly, uh, a terrific triple feature, of course, and also Joseph Losey's version of M. The entire climax of that movie was filmed in the Bradbury building, a great building downtown in L.A. That's a great building that's been used in a lot of films. And I just wanted to mention that because in the current issue of the Noir City E-Magazine, issue number 23, there's an article about the noir style in Blade Runner, the movie, and its sequel, uh, written by Brian J. Robb, who wrote the book Counterfeit Worlds, Philip K. Dick on film. Philip K. Dick, of course, the author of the book that Blade Runner was based on. And the article has a sidebar on the Bradbury building and its appearance in noir over the decades in movies and TV episodes and even in video games. So that's really interesting. Uh, I definitely recommend people check that out. That, that, that is going to be a, a, great, um, a great triple feature. The Prowler, of course, is an extremely subversive portrayal of middle-class life and someone trying to escape the trappings that he finds himself in in Southern California. And, uh, you know, the original title of that movie is uh, The Cost of Living. And uh, I think that was a, is almost more appropriate because essentially it's the increasing cost of living, which is the driving force that motivates Van Heflin to concoct this scheme to get his hands on the, the money that she's entitled to once he takes her husband out of, out of the way. So, and M is, is also... A, you would normally think, like, why would somebody remake uh, a great film like M? But actually, it's a surprisingly good remake, and it has a lot. It has just an incredible performance by David Wayne, who has who's known more for his comedic roles. Uh, but he, you know, he comes very close to portraying the kind of uh, internal anguish and, and torment that he that he struggles with much as, as, as Laurie did so successfully in the original. And uh, the other thing that's great about, about uh, M is like it's a rogues gallery of uh, film noir character actors. Howard DeSilver, Martin Gable, Luca Atlas, Steve Brody, Norman Lloyd, Raymond Burr. It's just a, it's a cavalcade of, of all these great uh, character actors that we see in, in and out of many film noirs. So it's uh, and that and that's actually a newly restored print by the Library of Congress. Uh, we know that's going to look really great. That print. Another big night at the festival is going to be a double bill of rarities, courtesy of Paramount. One a digital restoration and another uh, an archival print or a new print. Um, digital restoration is the 1952 movie The Turning Point, which is. Not the same as the 1970s ballet movie, The Turning Point, of course, with Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine. This one is a racketeering or organized crime noir with uh, Edmund O'Brien and William Holden. So uh, what can you tell us about that one? Oh, yeah, that's actually a terrific film. Uh, and it's worth noting also that the Film Noir Foundation uh, has never screened either one of these two movies. So this will be the first time that uh, these will be screened at, at any of the film noir festivals. And in fact, uh, I have it on good authority um, that it's quite possible that the Scar- this might be the first screening for The Scarlet Hour since it first appeared in 1956. So, and, and um, Paramount dug out uh, what I'm told is a very, a very nice 35-millimeter print and um, they also worked uh, to create a, a, a DCP of the turning point. And uh, that evening, uh, a guest we're going to have uh, is Andrea Callis, who is in archivist for Paramount Studios. And she's going to be the guest there uh, because those two films, it, it is an occasion uh, to have the opportunity to see those two films. Uh, that have, you know, so rarely been screened. They're both interesting films. Uh, I think, I think uh, The Scarlet Hour, uh, you know, even though Tom Tryon in the lead can be a little stiff, I think, I think Kathy Omert gives a really good performance. Carol, uh, Carol and, Omart, right. Carol, Carol. Yeah, I think she just gives a great performance. And, um, 
And the cinematography by Lionel Linden is particularly fine. There are a number of, of, of exterior shots, nighttime exterior shots that are beautifully lit. It, it's really a marvel uh, how he lit some of these exterior shots. And, and of course, in classic um, Michael Curtiz fashion, he keeps his foot on the gas, and, and the plot just moves along briskly. Uh, there's a great shot uh, of, of a funeral in, in Hollywood Coretta Cemetery. There's a lot of great um, L.A. locations, not only in, in this film, but in every film in the series. And, um, <clears throat> and Lionel Linden also was the DP on, on The Turning Point. And <clears throat> what's interesting about that is that the whole first half of the film takes place in, in bright sunlight. Uh, there's extended sequences where uh, McKibben's character, William Holden, is, is, uh, is shadowing Tom Tully, and I won't give away too much of the plot, but uh, that's all, and again, superb, superb use of, of actual Los Angeles locations, and we get to a certain point with the Ed Bagley character, where he decides make a decision and then suddenly the entire visual tone of the film changes for the whole second half everything is cast in, in these ominous shadows dark uh, night scenes and uh, it's almost as if the moral uh, the moral compass of the film radically shifts and the, the visual elements of the film sort of like underscore uh, you know just how dark the plot goes, and it, it's it's really it, it's it's quite a uh, quite a quite an amazing film, and I'm glad I actually had an opportunity to track down a copy uh, to watch it um, not that long ago, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it, both of those films on the big screen. theme in several of Brian's Moore City e-magazine articles has been book versus film, where he makes a detailed comparison between a classic noir film and the book it was adapted from. Brian's comparison articles include noir classics such as Too Late for Tears, While the City Sleeps, Repeat Performance, and Vertigo. Let's talk now about the book versus film article you wrote for Noir City issue number 17, which is a comparison of a book and two different film adaptations of it, the French novel La Chienne from 1929, the French film of the same name from 1931, directed by Jean Renoir, and the Hollywood version from 1945, which was the Fritz Lang-directed classic, Scarlet Street. And this article is available to read now on the FNF's homepage under the e-magazine tab, and we'll also have a link to that in the notes for this podcast episode. So, and before we get into the details of that, actually, let's start with um, how you first got involved with working for the Film Noir Foundation, or with the Film Noir Foundation, which relates to this... Um, common theme of articles that you've been writing? Uh, well, yeah, I, I had, uh, from going to the festivals, uh, you know, in L.A., Palm Springs, and up at the Castro, I sort of, like, you know, became uh, somewhat friendly with both Eddie and Alan, and we would, you know, socialize together from that now and again. And uh, at one point, <clears throat> I got invited uh, to a private screening of the newly restored too Late to Tears up at, uh, at the uh, UCLA Film and Television Archive up in Hollywood. And uh, we had all uh, obviously seen the, the public domain copy that had been floating around for decades that was so dreadfully murky that uh, you couldn't even tell what was going on half of the time. And so uh, it, was, it was a great opportunity to see this newly restored restored film and uh yeah, it was a small theater and there were a bunch of us in the theater along with uh, uh scott mcqueen and his great restoration team and and after the film <clears throat> they they turned the lights up the house lights up and everybody was kind of like weighing in on what their uh 
what their impressions were. And uh, everybody was going around the room, and I was just kind of flying on the wall, listening to how the restoration was put together using different source materials, and it was really kind of a fascinating uh, little uh, glimpse into how, how, how restorations are done. And at some point, uh, Eddie turned to me and said, what did you think? And I said, well, I was amazed at how closely the film followed the novel. Uh, you know, I mean, I know Roy Huggins both wrote both the novel and the screenplay, but that doesn't, when you have uh, producers who intervene, that does not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, indicate that there's going to be that type of fidelity to the novel. And he looked at me and he said, so you've actually read the book? And I said, yeah, I read it a while ago. Um, after I managed to find an old uh, late 50s movie tie-in old paperback. And he said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then the conversation went on to other subjects. And, uh, and that was it. Um, you know, we parted ways. And I think a few a month or two later, uh, just out of, out of the blue, Eddie uh, emailed me and said, um, would you be, considering that you are the only other person that I know, aside from myself, that's actually read the book, would you be interested in doing you know, a book-to-film essay on it. And uh, <clears throat> I was, well, uh, I was a little intimidated at first because I, the only professional writing I had done was a series of articles that I wrote in Billboard magazine back in 2000. And I wrote some program notes for a couple of the festivals at, at LACMA when I was in the film department. But, you know, I thought it over and I figured... Uh, yeah, I think I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I was familiar with how to research. Um, you know, I was familiar with the Margaret Herrick, uh, the Academy Library up here uh, in L.A. Uh, because of some of the research I did on, on the film festivals that I worked on at LACMA. And so I, I took on the task, and, um, you know, and that's kind of how I got started. How I got to do the, the this, this particular book to film uh, is that uh, <clears throat> well, Eddie emailed me at one point and told me that uh, the upcoming issue, uh, the theme of, of the upcoming issue is going to be art and film noir, and he asked me if I had any suggestions for a book-to-film uh, comparison. So I um, obviously the first thing that came to mind was uh, was Scarlet Street. I mean, that is, that is the, the noir where, uh, the one noir where art, plays an integral part of the plot. And uh, the only problem was um, <clears throat> I had been looking for an English translation of uh, De La Fouche Diaz's novel, uh, La Chienne, for, for decades. And I had given up about 10 years ago. And I told him I'd love to do Scarlet Street, but I don't know if I could find a, um, an English translation. And um, so the possibility of actually doing something on that sort of like uh, uh, prompted me to actually renew my search. And I, I initially found uh, on the internet, I found a 1955 Avon paperback titled Sensualite. And the English translation was The Turn of the Worm. And um, so I emailed Eddie and I said, I think I found a copy. Uh, he said, okay, so we're, we're a go with the article. And I said, yeah, I should, I should be receiving the copy any day. And, and you know, I'll pour through it, and I'll start working on it. And when I got that particular paperback, I started reading it. <clears throat> I realized about 30 or 40 pages in that, like, the translation seemed a little wonky to me because uh, the pimp and the prostitute had these these severe cockney accents, and I just it was so off-putting that I didn't feel comfortable comfortable were I didn't know I didn't feel comfortable with the integrity of the translation and so ultimately um, <clears throat> what I you know I, I, I looked every I looked all over the place to try to find because uh, Alfred Knopf had issued a uh, an English translation in 1931 uh, and um, I couldn't find an affordable copy in that book and so I did this search throughout uh, the state of California to see if any libraries had a copy. And I found 
one copy out at UC Riverside, uh, the college campus. Their library had one copy of of the the English title. The Kanaf title was Poor Sap, and so I arranged. Um, I, arran- I, I, hel- I I put the book on hold, made an appointment, and I drove out. It was about an hour and a half, and I, I got out there and I asked if I could take the book out, and they said I would have to. I would need a, a to uh, register for a library card, and that and that was going to cost me like a hundred dollars. And so I said, "Can I then maybe I'll just read the book while I'm here?" And and she said, "Yeah, there's a bank of cubicles against the wall there. Feel free to sit down at one of those desks." And when I looked over at the, at the cubicles, I I said to the to the uh, to the receptionist, I said, "Are they overhead scanners?" Over the over in the cubicles, and she said, "Yeah, they are." And I said, "Am I allowed to scan this book?" And she paused for a moment. She said, "As long as you're not thinking about reprinting it." And I said, "No, I'm just actually it's for research." And she said, "Sure." And so I took the book over there. I spent about an hour and a half scanning 260 pages, <clears throat> and then they even had an office where I, for a nominal fee, I had it spiral bound, and uh, that was the ideal. Uh, arrangement for me uh, so I could take the book home and sort of like highlight you know the different parts which is how I like to work um, when I do any film any book to film uh, translation so uh, so that turned out to be you know a a, a really fortunate uh, discovery and um, and that was the translation of that was, was by a different person and that was to my eyes much closer to the spirit of, of the book and story. Let's talk a bit about the book, which was written by a prolific author named Georges de la Fouchardière, French author who was very active in the 19th, 20s, and 30s. So tell us a bit about him and his book, La Chienne. He was extremely prolific. Uh, he wrote he wrote quite a few uh, mysteries and and many of them had some many of them had a lot of comedic elements and I think at least ten or more of them had had been adapted to films in France. Uh, he was also a playwright um, and he he even wrote uh, he wrote also uh, he, he he was a journalist he covered both World War One and World War Two and he even had a second career. Uh, writing for a sports magazine under an alias, um, and he was—he was just overall a generally uh, interesting and prolific writer. Uh, and I—I—I I, I don't know if much more of his work has been translated into this country, but uh, he was his work was very popular uh, in the twenties and thirties in in France. And then there was the 1931 Jean Renoir movie, which starred um, Michel Simon, the great actor who was in many of his films and one of the great classic French actors. So uh, tell us a bit about that. And then I guess we can go straight in, then into the difference, really primarily a difference in tone between the Renoir film of La Chienne and Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street from 1945. And there, there are some pretty significant differences in terms of the tone between, uh, you know, Renoir's, Renoir's approach is more relaxed and you get the sense that he gives actors the latitude to build in a uh, little bits of improvisation and bits of business and uh, kind of, he allows them to sort of like work their way through a scene. And uh, with Lang, you know that uh, everybody is in the service of his vision and, uh, you know, nothing happens on the set or in the film that uh, he has not intended for it to be there. And, um, and it's, clear that, it's clear that Lang had seen um, Renoir's original film because they both have, they both actually follow literally the novel scene by scene. And um, he also, in addition, he had Dudley Nichols write the screenplay um, and uh, they had actually tried to screen a copy of the film based on the production notes that I came across uh, when they were pre- when they were preparing for uh, Scarlet Street, but um, it's not entirely clear whether they actually succeeded in getting a copy. 
but um, Nichols screenplay uh, and Lang gives it, gives him full credit for crafting the screenplay follows uh, Renoir's film scene by scene, as I mentioned, including the ending, uh, which does not appear in the original novel. Uh, it's 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 a uh, completely different ending in in very significant ways between uh, both Scarlet Street and La Chienne and the actual novel. Uh, which I thought was 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 pretty interesting, uh, not only in tone, well, not only in tone, but in the perspective of of, of Maurice in La Chienne, in uh, La Chienne and Chris Cross in um, in Scarlet Street. And there's lots of great details on the production of Scarlet Street in your article, which, as I mentioned, we have a link to that in the. Um the episode notes for this podcast. So, and also just briefly wanted to mention there, of course, is another Jean Renoir Fritz Lang remake connection that was also adapted from a book, which was La Bête Humaine, or The Human Beast by Emile Zola. And that was uh, adapted by Renoir for one of his greatest films in 1938 with Jean Gabin and Simon Simon. And then Fritz Lang in 1954 did his version, which is called Human Desire with Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham and Broderick Crawford, which is, uh, to me, is a great movie. I really love that one. Um, I think opinions yeah, vary I, on it, but I'm I'm very high on that one. <laughs> no, I'm I, I'm also as well, and I know uh, uh, Renoir was not fond of the movie, and and even uh, in in some of the biographies I've read about Lang, he he wasn't uh, completely happy with the finished project. But I happen to think it's pretty solid, uh, uh, pretty solid um, film, uh, and. Uh, the, 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 two, the, the one thing that I do want to point out about the difference between Scarlet Street and Renoir that, that I think really underscores how different uh, the tone is in the two films is the ending. Um, the ending in, uh, in Scarlet Street, which I'm sure many of your viewers are well familiar with, is, is a, a, uh, a, um, a devastated um, crisscross you know, being woken up off a park bench, he's destitute, he's homeless, he's been fired from his cashier's job, uh, and he's wandering down the street, uh, lost in his own little world, and his own self-imposed prison, and, um, and he comes face to face with, with his portrait, the quote self-portrait of Catherine March. He comes face to face with that, and and he is just absolutely polaxed. And um, and what's interesting about that is uh, there is there is a there is a there is an identical scene at the end of Renoir's film, whereas Maurice Legrand uh, winds up reconnecting with Adele's husband, and they're both bums. They're shiftless, similar to the way uh, Robinson is, but they are. Perfectly happy uh, with with their lifestyle. They have accepted their lowly station. Uh, I think Renoir used to refer to it as a sense of bohemian freedom. And um, a similar event occurs. They 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 stop in front of a uh, an art gallery, and uh, out comes the self portrait, uh, which was just bought by a wealthy patron. And, but it's actually in La Chienne, it's the self-portrait of Michel Legrand. He painted himself in that case, which I think is one of the, that reversal, I think, is one that makes, it makes Scarlet Street more interesting. But the, but the difference is that we, the audience, see the, the portrait being carried out and placed in the backseat of a, of, a, of a car for the wealthy patron. And the portrait is facing toward the rear of the car. So uh, Michel Legrand and his hobo, uh, you know, friend, they don't see it. Uh, and somebody drops a 20-franc note on the sidewalk, and they scoop it up. And as the car drives away, um, they exclaim, 20 francs, what's wrong with life anyway? And they go off, like, as happy as, as larks and completely... Uh, if there's anything to underscore, um, you know, the, 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 the difference in, in, the, in the, the somber fatalism and the cynicism of, of Scarlet Street with, 
that almost like happy-go-lucky uh, and kind of a, a nod and a wink to the audience uh, type of thing in La Chienne. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that pretty much like in a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell kind of illustrates how different those two directors approach the same material. have some fun now with one of the great film noir soundtracks, which you covered in detail in your article, Scoring Evil, the Henry Mancini Touch, from Noir City issue number 15. The soundtrack in question is, of course, from Orson Welles' 1958 classic, Touch of Evil. You start off with a great Welles story from Mancini's memoirs, which we'll read here. And this story mentions the head of Universal's music department at the time, whose name was Joe Gershenson, who was Henry Mancini's boss. It was a rainy Saturday morning, I remember. Well swept into Joe Gershenson's office in a cape, in a dark hat, and with a big cigar, one of those Monte Cristo giants. It seemed as if Doom, the wrath of hell, was invading the music department. Joe introduced me to Wells. Al Zugsmith, the producer, was sitting on the couch. Wells started to cruise the room, saying, here we'll do this and here we'll do that. Then Zugsmith made some point that wasn't exactly to Wells' liking. I can't remember what it was, but I certainly remember Wells' reaction to it. He let it go for a couple of minutes. But he walked a little faster as he talked, obviously getting his offensive up. He continued walking faster and faster, getting angrier and angrier, and directing his stream of fury at Zugsmith. I was sitting there taking it all in. By now I was used to movie people, but this, after all, was Orson Welles, and I was working on his picture. At the height of his rage, he had just met me a half hour ago, he snapped around, looked at me, pointed a long finger at me, and said from a great height, Who's he? That was my only encounter and my only conversation, if you want to call it that, with Orson Welles. After that meeting, I never saw him again. And that is how Henry Mancini met Orson Welles, which is a great story. Um, so uh, tell us a bit about Welles's approach to the soundtrack of Touch of Evil, which is really interesting and pretty unique for that period of time in movies and how it used the music. Welles was uh, acutely aware not only of, of how to use music, um, but how to use sound effectively, a lot of which he picked up from the Mercury Theater and, uh, you know, doing those radio broadcasts where sound uh, and the type of sound used plays uh, a crucial role in recreating uh, those radio broadcasts. And so I think he had a, a profound understanding of how to use music and sound. And it, there was a three-page letter that he, he'd written to Gershenson, and, uh, you know, which indicates that he had a very distinct what he called a sound design. And, um, you know, he, he was he was very specific. He did not want any overt underscoring, uh, you know, or non-diegetic music. He, he, he was very specific. He wanted as much of the music as possible to, to be diegetic or source music emanating from within the scene. And, and that's the kind of music that he wanted uh, built into the uh, into the narrative, and you know, I love the way he described it. He wanted musical color and sustained washes of sound, um, and and he he wanted to use those sort of like enhance uh, what he envisioned would be somewhat unconventional transitions from scene to scene, and and, and a guy like Mancini. He was he was beyond perfect for this uh, because essentially his job uh, at Universal was what they called spotting. You know they would they would they would give him like a half of a film. He would have to actually um, they called it, he worked in what they called the salt mine. And uh, whenever they needed a piece of source music from a jukebox or radio or band or whatever, Mancini would go in and he would do an arrangement of something that they already had in the Universal Library, or he would compose a new piece 
for a jazz or Latin band. And in some cases, they actually did what they called cribbing, which was actually lifting pieces from earlier Universal pictures. Uh, and he, he famously said, if Universal owned it, we could steal it. And he, 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 he copped to using a lot of uh, the music from Nicholas Roche's The Killers. And, uh, and yeah, he, he, he considered that to be an invaluable learning ground. And, and uh, the other thing he had to do was uh, he learned how to time pieces and choose how to insert the pieces into a particular scene. Um, he'd, get a, he'd get a piece of music, a stopwatch, he'd figure out the tempo he wanted and how many bars he needed to get from one point to another or from one scene to the next. And, and you know, he would, he would map that all out. It, that all, the timing had to be mapped out before a single note was written. Um, and that was an invaluable learning process for him. And, you know, when, when he read uh, from, from this letter that Gershenson had from Wells, uh, it, this, was, this was right in his wheelhouse. I mean, this, this, is, this is what he had been doing uh, all along at Universal. So, you know, he was a perfect fit for it. So what we're going to do now is we'll hear a few of the tracks from the soundtrack. Uh, these are all between two to three minutes in length, so pretty short. And um, these are some of the tracks that I think typify the different styles and um, the different um, effects that Mancini and Wells were accomplishing with the soundtrack. So we'll start with a track called Strollin' Blues, which is in the background of one of the scenes as they're walking around the town. And tell us a bit about the guitar and saxophone players we hear in particular on this track and the great group of jazz musicians that Mancini put together for this soundtrack. Mancini... uh... He was a big fan of Stan Kenton's big band, and Stan Kenton had flirted a little bit with Afro-Cuban rhythms, uh, and uh, and he went to Gershenson and he said, you know, I think we really need uh, to uh, to hire some some top class LA studio musicians who really want to do this thing right. He got the green light, and so he tapped a number of musicians from Kenton's band, and and, and as well as assembling some on his own. Uh, Dave Pell and Flaz Johnson on on saxophones, uh, the great Shelly Man on drums, uh, and of course Jack uh, Costanza uh, on bongo and conga, and um, and of course Red Norvo on vibes, and uh, the great Barney Kessel on guitar. He, his, he he was essentially known as a jazz musician, but he was rooted in blues. And, and country swing or western swing. So he had a great understanding of the different types of music uh, that, that Mancini wanted to incorporate into these, in, to build into these little scenes. And of course, uh, Dave Powell and Plaz Johnson and Conrad Gozo on, on trumpet, um, they, could, they could honk and wail and play rhythm and blues with the best of them. And so, you know, he assembled this this golden team of musicians to craft these, these, you know, stylistically diverse snippets of music.
next track we're going to hear from the soundtrack is called Something for Susan. And this one is unusual for the soundtrack, as you write, in that it does not come from any source on screen. It's actually just in the background soundtrack where there's no visible source, so the characters can't hear it. But Mancini put this in, as you write, for a very poignant scene in in which there is a very poignant realization by Menzies, who is the character played wonderfully by Joseph Kalia. Kalia is 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 superb in the film, and and it's interesting to note that Wells actually wrote that part with Lloyd Bridges in mind, who he thought was a a a, uh, a phenomenal actor, and um, but he was more than happy uh, because he he also had great respect for uh, Kalia, um, and that's. What's effective about that is that you can you can see in his face while he's watching uh, Heston try to comfort his traumatized wife, uh, who has literally been sexually abused and, and drugged and uh, and just had this horrific experience. And you can see in Menzies' face this sense of moral and ethical fatigue. He, I think he's it, I think he's beginning to come to terms with the fact that. Uh, his partner, who he holds in such high esteem, is is he's beginning to see the enormity of this guy's evil, and um, you know, he doesn't utter a word in the scene. But I, I think it's an extremely powerful moment, and it's kind of hard to imagine how Lloyd Bridges would have played that because I don't think anyone could have did it better than uh, than Joe Collier. talk about a clip from the track known on the soundtrack as Background to Murder, which plays from an interesting source. Uh, it seems to be a band out on the street, or a mixture of different sources, coming through an apartment window. And this is the very harrowing scene of the murder of the character played by Akin Tamaroff, by, killed by uh, Quinlan, played by Orson Welles, with Janet Lee's character Susan drugged on the bed. And she, of course, is going to be framed for the murder. So tell us a bit about this track and how that um, effect plays into the terror of that scene. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the music begins with uh, an accent on the percussion, the conga and the conga and the bongos, and, and you can hear the horns slowly kind of building. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, as, as early on, I think, in the motel scene, uh, like particularly with... Uh, uh, Lease Breaker and a few of the other tunes, the music gets to a certain point where it really becomes very aggressive, and it begins to take a more active role in in and a, a, a more aggressive effect on the characters, and it kind of reaches this crescendo in this one particular scene when it becomes apparent what Wells has brought Brandy up here for. Uh, as, you know, after he makes the phone call and... Uh, and sets up uh, the police to come and, and, and find uh, Susan in this compromised state. Uh, this, the scene plays out 
using just incredible handheld camera work as as he he scrambles around and tries to corner uh, Grandi, and Grandi plays it. Uh, I, I've read uh, uh, Wells in later interviews say even he was uh, shocked by how perverse uh, you know the film seemed once it was completed and he had a chance to look at it. Grandi's licking his lips in, in an almost sexual way as he gets cornered and uh, and as it's as it's playing out as he's chasing him around and he's trying to reach for, for the gun underneath the bed and his his, his wig or his rug falls off. Uh, the, the the music slowly just continues to build and percolate and it becomes this like cauldron of, of like intensity and it's it, 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 it to my ears it sounds almost like it's an accessory in the crime. And uh, when he finally strangles Grandi, the, whole, the strident horns keep, keep beating this, uh, and, and there's just this propulsive kind of, uh, kind of tempo that reaches this, this crescendo uh, as, as he's dropped over the, uh, over the, the, the railing of the bed. And, um, and then as, as, as Quinlan starts to make his exit and he gets to leave his cane, then the, the tempo and the volume of the music slowly begins to recede as he's exiting the scene. So it's just amazing how the music seems to have taken an active role in, uh, in that murder. Let's end now with a very plaintive theme played on the piano called Tana's Theme, which is the music associated with the fortune teller played so memorably by Marlena Dietrich, who is who gets very little screen time, I think, in the end, probably not more than a few minutes total, but uh, in typical Dietrich style, she milks every second of it. <laughs> she's memorable and wonderful every moment that she's on screen. So tell us a bit about this theme. Yeah, well, we first hear Tana's uh, uh, theme uh, when Wells comes onto the scene of the explosion, and he realizes that her her brothel is still 
up and running, and he wanders in. He, he's he's lured by Anna's team, you know, drifting out of out of uh, her establishment, and he wanders in, and they have that you know interesting interaction where she doesn't recognize him. And, but that's when we're first introduced to it, and so it, it's the what it represents obviously is a um, a past where he was he was more in his prime. He obviously had some sort of, the implication is that he spent a lot of time there back in the good old days, and he may have even had a physical relationship with uh, with Tanya. Uh, he loved her chili, and um, and uh, so that's the first time we're introduced to that, and, um, and it cycles back after, after Vargas orchestrates this uh, scheme to, to get him to, to get him to record, uh, you know, to get it, to get him to confess on the on the uh, on the tape recorder, and um, and once he gets he gets shot, uh, and he and he drifts off into this in, into this riverbank. Um, she comes running up, and with her comes the mute, that that theme comes back with Tana, with Tana, and it's just sort of like, it, it was to me, it, it was like the perfect musical coda, uh, non-diegetic, uh, but uh, it really underscored the fact that, um, as she told him earlier, uh, you have no future, you're all, it's all used up. And so, uh, to me, that was a perfect um, perfect way to end, uh, end the film, to bring it back to a, a happier time in his life. And, uh, and that's, what I, that's what I think Tanya... Tana and her theme sort of like represented for him and for the film. Okay, so as we hear that theme, we'll wrap things up here. So, Brian Light, thanks so much for joining us here on Noir Talk. Thanks for having me, you guys. and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Filmar Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmarfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Filmar Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, please rate and review our show on iTunes or you can contact us via email at podcastfilmarfoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode and until then, thanks for joining us here on Noir Talk.